Welcome to the Real Men series, a series for men. We live in a time where there's great confusion over one of the basic truths of life. What is a man? Or what is a woman for that matter? One thing we know with absolute certainty, where confusion reigns, God does not. When God created us male and female, he did that on purpose and with a purpose. The Real Men series is intended to remind us why God made us the way that he did. It will help to remind men who they are in Christ. Real men will help us to rediscover biblical manhood. God has called you to a higher purpose. He has called you to be a real man. Welcome to Real Men. Lord God, as we take this time, we've, we've spent some time hanging out, fellowshipping, and we've taken a little time and we've lifted up our hearts and voices to you. And now, Lord, we, we ask, Lord God, that you administer to each of us through your word, that you would speak to me and then speak through me, Lord God, and that you would use this time to draw us ever closer to you, but at the same time, help us to be what we are. Lord, just as we just sang, you know, believing the things that you say you are, Lord God, we need to believe the things you say we are too. And so I pray, Lord, that you help us to do that a little bit more today as we get into your word and see what it means to be a real man. Thank you, Lord, for this time. We lift it up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 God bless you guys. Welcome. We're in um, continuing our series Real Men, Rediscovering Biblical Manhood. This, sort, this series was born out of the idea that the modern church has a problem. When Jesus said he would build his church, he was speaking to men. He ordained those men to take his message out into the world to plant churches and ordain other men to take that message out and plant more churches. And that's gone on for thousands of years now, 2,000 years. The question is, why men? Why not ordain women to do the same thing? Why didn't, I mean, Jesus had a ton of women around him at all times. There were men and women with him at all times. And some of those women manifested more faith than some of the guys did. Why didn't he choose any of them? Why didn't he ordain any of the women? Now, now we might say, well, it was a cultural thing. Okay, Jesus didn't care about the culture that much. He didn't let that influence him. He did things that were counter to the culture all the time. That's what got him in trouble pretty regularly. So there had to be another reason why God chose men and not women. And I believe it goes back to the very beginning, to the creation account. God made Adam first. And then he made Eve. Why did he do that? Could God have made them both at the same time? Yeah, he could have. And the way he created them, God took Adam, he used the dust of the earth, to make Adam, and then when he made Eve, he took Eve, he took a rib out of Adam and made Eve from that rib. Why did he do it that way? Couldn't he not have made them 
the same way at the same time? And then why did he make them so different? Signi I mean, the, I mean, we, you guys recognize there's a difference between men and women, right? And doesn't matter what your culture says. They're different. Why did he do it that way? Why do it so differently? Well, let's understand. God doesn't do anything arbitrarily. He doesn't just do things like, oh, I think I'll do it this way, this way, and that way, that this time. He doesn't just make it up as he goes. Everything he does is with a purpose and a plan, right? Do we acknowledge that? God is very organized. He's sovereign. He has this, this, this plan that was established before, the, before he created anything, and it runs from the very beginning all the way to the end, and he knows all of it. And he did everything he did, he did on purpose and with a purpose. Adam, and by extension, all men, was created by God to represent God as head over all of creation. God is head over all creation, and he established man and gave him dominion over creation. Eve, and by extension all women, was created to help man do that. Bible says very clearly when he made Eve, he made her as a helper comparable, not the same, not, not, not to do the same thing, but she was to help him. Now we're not going to get into you know, the fact that men and women, while they are, they are different, they are equal in God's eyes in the way that he sees them, perceives them as far as, as, as issues of salvation and issues of, of all the other issues, but God created an order and a purpose and he did it on purpose. He did it for a reason. God could have made men and women so that they were more alike than different, but he didn't. He created men to lead. And he symbolized that by making Adam first. It's symbolic. It's meant to say something when he did it. Dale Partridge in the book, The Manliness of Christ, book I'd encourage you to read. It's a short read. I read it in about an hour and a half talks about, you know, Jesus Christ as, as, as a man and his manliness. You know, this is not to say, let me, quote, let me quote him, right? Men are not just called to lead, but are anatomically, biologically, and hormonally designed to lead. God made us. Everything about us was made so that we can lead. Now, it's not to say that women aren't, that are, are not capable of leading. They, they can. But that's not what God designed them for. And because men have abdicated their God-ordained role of leadership and they've, they've abdicated to women, God's perfect order is corrupted. The way we see things going on in the world today is because men are not standing up and fulfilling their God-ordained role in the culture. And sadly, we see this happening even in the church. The church... Is, is presenting and preaching a soft Christ. This, this almost effeminate Christ. It's godless and wicked. It is not who Jesus is. The world, including the church, is the way that it is because real men have not embraced their 
biblically defined masculinity. We're living in a time when masculinity, when you hear the word masculinity, it's always connected to the word toxic. Brothers, masculinity is not toxic. Now, now, some men will be toxic. That's just because they're wicked and corrupted and that happens. But masculinity in and of itself is not toxic. When we do it the way God says we ought to do it, it is perfect, it is good, it is right, it is holy, and it, is, it will uplift everyone around them. Men are becoming effeminate. Women are becoming masculine. This whole, this whole trans movement is bizarre on one level, but it's wrong on every level. If men were standing up and being what they're created to be, we wouldn't see that happening in our culture. Even churches portraying Jesus as soft. That's not the Jesus I see in the scriptures. It's out of order. And listen, when God created the universe, he created creation, he created man and woman, he created government, he created all these things he did, he did it perfectly. Sin corrupts it, sin makes it all messed up, get that. But the fact is that when we do it God's way, it works. And it brings flourishing and prospering and peace and joy and all the other things that we, we so long for and seek. It's when you do it God's way. Last time in the message that we started this series with, we looked at two animals and described them and used them as, as a kind of a you know, symbolic of who Christ is. We see him, we see Jesus depicted in two different ways with two different animals, the lion and the lamb. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah and he's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The question is, when is Jesus which one of them? And the answer is, he's always both. There's never a time that he's not both the lion and the lamb. The lion can be fierce and violent. The lamb is gentle and humble. Both are always true of Jesus. Now, when he was walking on the earth, which one did we see? The lamb, mostly, but not always, not always. Yes, he did. Occasionally, Jesus let the lion out. And when he comes back again, he's coming as the lion. You won't see the lamb when he comes back. The lamb will be put away. He's still the lamb, but he won't, you won't see that lamb when he comes back in his second coming. Isaiah 13, 9 says this, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with both wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate and he will destroy its sinners from it. Is that the lion or the lamb? That's the lion. There's no lamb in that. They're gonna, they're, in the second coming, they will see, they will witness the unrestrained lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, I talked about last time, I, I talked about the fact that real men can be violent, but 
are usually gentle and humble. That's the way we ought to be, gentle and humble. But there ought to be times we ought to have that capability that should the need arise, that we let the lion out. We need to have that capability. We, we see it manifesting all around us. Which, what kind of a police officer do we want to have? We want to have a lion or a lamb? We want both. We want the lamb most of the time. But we want to know that when it comes time, when he comes time to, to deal with the evil that's in this world, that there's a lion in there and he will come out and he will do violence because that's what's required in that moment. In our military, do we want a military full of, full of lambs? <laughs> well, we're working toward that, sadly. That's not what we want. I want, I want men and women, mostly men, I'd rather have men, in the military, but that's another conversation. I want men that, do you know what? I was in the military. I never, I never had a chance to be violent in the military. And I'm gonna say, praise God, I didn't have to do, I didn't have, but I was ready. I was ready to do violence. That's what we need. That's what we're supposed to be. But we're creating a, a generation, generation after generation of men that may, may not have the capability of violence. And I think it's, I think it's going to be dangerous because there are violent people out there and somebody's got to stand up against them. What kind of men do we want standing up against the violence? We want men of God doing it. Men who will follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. They won't let their emotions, they won't let violence come out just for the sake of violence is they will do what they have to do to protect those who are vulnerable, those who are weak, those who can't protect themselves. That's what we need. We're going to examine another trait of God and then examine it in this context of biblical manhood. When we think about God, you know, besides holiness, what is the overarching trait that we think of that connects to God, that relates to God? Somebody say it out loud. Love, right? God is love. 1 John 4, 7 says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love. That is his nature. Now, it's also expressed in his holiness, in his justice, in his truth. Love is connected to all of that. You can't, you can't separate one from the other. When you see God's holiness, it's always manifesting in love. His justice is always manifesting in love. You can't separate the two, the three or four, however many. And all these facets together are God's perfection. God is perfect. What would we say is the opposite of love hate hate is the opposite of love here's a definition of hate or hatred hatred or hate is an intense negative emotional response towards certain people things or ideas this is off of dictionary.com some worldly dictionary usually related to opposition or revulsion towards something hatred is often associated with intense feelings of anger, contempt, and disgust. Hatred is sometimes seen as the opposite of love. So here's the question. If God is love, is he capable of hatred? 
Can God hate? Well, yeah, if you've ever read your Bible, you know that the answer to that is yes. That's the obvious answer. Proverbs 6.16, these six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. He hates these things, a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. The word love appears about 500 times in the Bible. The word hate appears about 200 times. It's not a minor thing. Most of us were taught that God is love. Okay, yeah, that's easy. But we were also taught that hate is evil. We just associate hate with evil. So the question then, if God can hate and he cannot do evil, then could our understanding of hate be incomplete or wrong? Is that possible? If we think all hate is evil, could we possibly misunderstand what hate actually is? Is it ever right for believers to hate? Now, most of you are probably saying, well, I'm not going to answer that one right now. Cause... <laughs> yes. Thank you. Yes. Proverbs 8.13 says this, the fear of the Lord is to hate Evil. In case you're wondering about the Hebrew word that's used there, the Hebrew word that's used and translated into hate means hate. Thank you very much. <laughs> Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. Hate is not evil. Except when evil people do it. When evil people are hating because they're evil, the hate that they're doing is evil as well. Hate is not evil. In fact, according to scripture, hate is the right response to evil. Solomon, wisest man on earth supposedly, in Ecclesiastes 3.8 says, there is a time to love and a time to hate. So, should be some loving going on and some hating going on, according to Ecclesiastes. The command to hate is also found in the New Testament, Romans 12, 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Abhor is similar to hate. We should be disgusted by evil to the point of strong, negative emotional response to it. And the writers, the Hebrews, quotes Psalm 45 as he speaks of Christ in Hebrews 1, 8, and 9. But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Jesus hated. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. God is love. God is good. God is holy. God is just. And God 
can hate. And not, and not cancel any of those other descriptions. He can do it while he is love, while he is good, while he is holy, while he is being just. And all of those things he can hate. And Proverbs 8.13, that verse we read just a minute ago, teaches us that, that evil, the hatred of evil, is an evidence of the fear of the Lord. If we don't hate evil, then, then we may not fear God the way that he would call us to. We don't have the reverence, the awe of him that we should if evil doesn't bother us. That leads us to the question. To help us to understand the idea of hating evil, we need to understand evil. What is evil? Now, now listen, I'm going to try to say in 45 minutes that it ought to take about two years for us to talk about. These are big, big topics. What is evil? Well, I, I can tell you one thing for absolute certainty. Nothing that the culture says is evil, probably. Our culture cannot determine what evil is. Our culture, it is evil. It's an act of hate to refer to a man who is pretending to be a woman as a man. It's, it, is a, it would be, it would be they, would say to, they would say to us that we are expressing hate if we were to say to that man, hey man, you do not have a womb and you cannot bear children. We call that truth. It's an expression of love to tell people the truth, but our culture says that's hate, that's evil. Humans are not capable of determining good from evil. Even believers struggle with this. To absolutely determine when we see something out in the world around her, is that evil, is that good? Now, certain things we can look at. Hamas going into Israel and butchering over a thousand people, including a couple of dozen Americans. Okay, we look at that and say, that's evil. But what did they describe it as? They described it as good. The topic of evil is very complicated. You know, we look at certain things, certain things happen. You know, a, a natural disaster happens. Do we call that evil or good? You know, it's hard sometimes. For this study, because ultimately the, this conversation about evil is, is just much broader than we can do today, I'm going to give you a very simple definition of evil. Evil is anything that is not in alignment with the revealed will of God. If it doesn't align with God's will, his word, his ways, his nature, that's evil. Why would we say that? Well, because God is perfect. And anything that's not like God, well, there is an element of evil in it. It's much more complicated, but this simple definition gives a starting point. Now, here's the point that we must not overlook. God is love, and he does not turn off his love when he hates. When God hates, he's still, it's an expression of love. God's will is perfect, and his reflection, it's a reflection of himself, and of his nature, of his love, his holiness, and his truth, when his will is manifesting. When he reveals his will to us, it is a reflection of everything that is God. 
And anything that's out of alignment with the will of God isn't good. Matter of fact, if it's out of alignment with God's perfect will, then it's unloving, it's unholy, it's unjust, it's false, and therefore it's evil. Turn, if you have your Bibles, turn to John 2, John chapter 2. The problem with us as humans is to know how to express hate in the face of evil. When we see evil, when we perceive evil, how are we to respond to it? How are we to act when we see evil? How do we, how do we hate in a way that resembles God, in a way that resembles Christ? Well, it'd be good if we had an example of that in the scriptures, right? Well, good for us. We actually have one here in John chapter 2. We're going to look at Jesus expressing, dealing with what, with evil, in John chapter 2, verse 13, I'll read the verse and then we'll talk about it. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. The Passover was the big feast of the year for the Jews. Every year they would gather together and they would come from all over Israel. Matter of fact, all over the world they would come to this annual feast. And part of the annual feast was to bring animals to be sacrificed for the covering over of sin. Well, there were very strict rules about those animals. They had to be of a certain quality and nature. And if there was anything less than what they would call spotless, you couldn't sacrifice it. So what happened early on in this, in this, this reality, people would come, they brought an animal, it wasn't really spotless, and, so, well, and the priest would say, well, we really can't sacrifice them. Well, here's another one. And they would, and they would do some sort of a kind of a swap with it so that the, you know, the person making the sacrifice would be able to sacrifice a spotless lamb or whatever it was they were sacrificing and then go about their way. Well, well, it became a business opportunity. And before long, when somebody would bring their spotless lamb, oh, sorry, yours won't work. And their, and their, their, their requirements became so rigid and so the tiniest little defect and they would they would say no you can't replace it no by by the way there's a a a service fee to to make this transaction verse 14 and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business the money changers were people that when somebody came from somewhere outside of Israel and they brought the wrong coins they'd swap them out always with a surcharge attached to it. And so it became a big business. And, and these Jewish businessmen were taking advantage of these people who were coming to worship God. And they were doing it in a very specific place. They were doing it in a place in the temple that was referred to as the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles, a Gentile was a non-Jew. A non-Jew could come and worship God in this place. And God wanted them to. But when they got there, what did they find? They found this huge, the whole court packed with these, with these kiosks and these animals and this noise. There was no way. That was the, the, the court of the Gentiles was the closest point a Gentile could get to the temple. And they get there, and it's just a mess. 
And Jesus had a problem with that. Verse 15. As we read these next two verses, I want you to, I want you to think to yourself, what Jesus does here is an expression of love or hate. Verse 15. When he had made a whip of cords, he being Christ, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, poured out the changers' money, and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take those things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. So what do you think? Love or hate? Both. God, you're such a good church. It's both. He loved loves God. He loves God and he, and, he, and he loves the people that want to come and worship God. He is an expression of his love when he sees how, how God's temple, God's the, the, the place where people are supposed to worship, he sees all this going on and it stirs up in him. He says, this is evil. And the love was the foundation. It was the source of his response and calling that evil. Listen, if you don't love something, it doesn't, it, there's no way it's going to cause you to express hate. You have to begin with love. I'm going to give you a stupid example. Anybody want to hear a stupid example? Okay, good. Whew. So suppose somebody were to come in here with a pint of mushroom ice cream. And they were to take a bite out of that ice cream and, and throw it in the trash. You know what my response is? That's a good response. Get rid of that. That's nasty. But if they were to come in with Ben and Jerry's caramel core ice cream and do the same thing, okay, now we got a problem. Now you're talking about something I love. It's, as I said, it's a stupid example. But it's the way it is. When we love something and then we see evil attached to it, evil threatening it, we love our children. If something comes against our children, threatens our children, you're going to see a response out of me. My grandchildren, you're going to see a response out of me that will not be described as loving, but it's motivated by love. When God hates, it's because something is out of alignment with his revealed will about something he loves. God can hate, and because God can hate, real men can hate too. But before you start hating on mushroom ice cream, I want you to consider four things. Four things. We're talking about four things. Your mind, your heart, your body, and the spirit. We're going to go through all four of those pretty quickly, and then I'm going to end with an overall thought. First, your mind. Before you allow hate to be expressed, and this is the thing, brothers, we cannot, re we cannot react in hate because that's the, that's the way our world works. When they see something they don't like, the reaction is automatic. It is a reflex of hate. We cannot do that. Not if we're going to be real men. Not if we're going to be men of God. A man of God pauses. The very first thing he does, he checks his mind. 
do I know what God's revealed will is in this matter? Romans 12, 2 tells us this. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Brothers, we can't, we can't even really trust our own minds in this. We've got to know what God's will is in, in anything that we're reacting to. If you see something going on and, you, and your perception of it is evil, but you don't know what God's will is in it, be careful. You don't know. If you were hanging around with Noah and all of a sudden everybody on earth is drowning except eight people, would you consider that good or evil? If you don't know God's will, what would you call it? You'd call that evil. But if you know God's will, no, that's good, even though it's pretty horrific. Be careful. If you don't know God's will in something, we got to be very, very careful. Very often we're judging things in ignorance and it's very hard to do what's right when what you're doing is based on ignorance. Know the will of God as best you can. Second, your heart. Check your heart before you express hatred. Well, there's a problem with that. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. What do we do when we see this thing? And I think the response that I ought to do is hate. Then I need to first check my mind. Do I know what God's will is in this? And I need to check my heart. Am I allowing my wicked heart to make a decision that is wrong? Or am I allowing my heart, is my heart in alignment with God's heart in this matter? Check your heart. Third, your body. Your body is what we, that's what we do. We use our body to do whatever we're going to do. If you're going to hate, it's going to be with your body, either your mouth or your eyes or your hands or your feet. It's, you know, it's going to come out of you. Before you allow hate to be expressed, you must make sure that you are not allowing your flesh to control you. We got this problem inside of us. We have two parts of us. We have this flesh and the spirit. Galatians 5, 16 and 17, I say then walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. Brothers, if, we're, if we are faced with evil, then God may be calling us to do something. But we gotta be careful because our flesh might want to do, well, our flesh does want to do the wrong thing. I promise you that. And we got to be careful. We got to know, is the spirit leading me to do X, Y, or Z? Or is it my flesh? That naturally leads us to the last one, the spirit. The spirit of God will not lead us contrary to the will of God. Does that make sense? The spirit of God can only lead us in accordance with the will of God. So we must humble ourselves before God. In Romans 8, 13 and 14 says this, if you live according to the flesh, you will die, speaking spiritually. But if, you, if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. You want to be a man of God? You want to be a real man? You're letting the Spirit lead you. And you know what? That might be contrary to what your flesh wants. My flesh wants to burn the place down. But the Spirit might be saying to do something else. Spirit might say, you know what? This is not the time for the lion. This is time for the lamb. This is time for humility. This is time for peace. This is time for a, a gentle expression of the truth, whatever it might be. We could but the, let, the, let the spirit lead you and not the flesh. One last thought as we prepare to close. Jesus is the lion and the lamb. He's both all the time. But in the gospel, we see more lamb than we do lion. That's just the way that it was. Real men are going to be like that. That what, what most people should see out of us is the lamb, the lamb of God, the Christ-likeness that is reflected as we see him in the gospel. We should be humble. We should be gentle until we can't, until there's a reason why we can't be that way anymore. The same thing is true of hate. The world should almost never see an expression of hate from a God, man of God. It should be rare. Now, as evil becomes more prevalent, it's probably going to be more prevalent that they see it out of the men of God. But when our family sees us, what should they see? They should see love. Our family should never, they, shouldn't, they should never be the recipients of hate, ever. when the spirit of God stirs us up and we see the evil in this world now we can't change all the evil we can't, we can't stop it but there's going to be a time there's going to be a place where that evil gets close enough to us that God would say okay I, want, I need you to do something here and because we are humbling ourselves with God, we're seeking his will, we're allowing him to, to affect our mind and our heart and influence our body, we're going to know when that time is. And then we'll do what God would call us to do. Brothers, I'm telling you right now, this world's in trouble. If we keep raising sissies, this world's going to be in big trouble. Now, most of us are mature men, We've got adult children, most of us, not all of us, most of us. We need to be helping the next generation with their children so that they're, so that they're not raising sissies. I, I, we have been so pacified, or, or that's not the right word. We, we have been suppressed and threatened with canceling because we, we talk like men, we act like men, and we're going to get canceled by somebody because of something. So stinking what? Go ahead, cancel me. I don't care. We have got to tell the truth. We've got to stand up and act like men. Now, we got to do it like Christ. So we don't, we don't just let the hate gun come out every time we see something we don't like. But we got to be ready. If there's evil out there and God wants us to stand against it, we need to say, God, here I am, send me. If there's something you want me to do, God, then just tell me what it is and I'll do it. 
We see that evil. We need to be ready. But first, we check our mind. We check our heart. We put a check on our body. And then as much as possible, we do it in love. Real men love what God loves. That makes sense, right? Shouldn't we love what God loves? We should also hate what God hates. And real men don't love the way the world loves. They're doing it wrong. And they're leading the men of our culture down a path of destruction, pain, suffering, misery. Real men don't love the way the world loves and they don't hate the way the world hates. We see a lot of hate in the world today. And most of it is evil and wicked because it's not being done in accordance with Christ. It's not being done as an expression of love. Most hate we see in the world today is an expression of hate. Pure, unadulterated hate. But if we're going to be men of God, when hate does come out, and it should occasionally, it's because of love. It's because we love something the way God loves it, and because God hates it, we're going to hate it too. And there may come a time when we have to show that to the world. Amen? Heavenly Father, we come, we thank you, Lord. This is a tough subject. And I know, I know we come with different ways of thinking about these things. And I pray, Lord, if, if someone's here and they, and, they, and they maybe see it differently than I do, then, Lord, then minister to our hearts. I don't, I don't believe that I, I know absolutely everything. I, I know that I, don't believe, I know everything. But I'm just doing the best I can with what I have. But I believe this is a problem, that if we keep raising men the way that we are, I don't, know how, I don't know how the gospel is going to go out, God. The gospel needs men. It needs men that have the courage and the boldness and the love to go out and tell the people of this world that they are lost. Now, the people of this world may, may see this as an expression of hate. Lord, let it not be expressed that way. Let, it, let us express it in love, but we need real men to do it. We need real men that will stand up and minister to their families, their marriages, their communities, their, in their workplace. We need real men, God. And so, Lord, I, I know I'm talking to a bunch of guys that are doing their best, and I certainly don't mean to say anything that, that brings condemnation to anyone. But, Lord God, we need, Lord, to stand up. Lord, I, I don't... I don't want to be known as a man of hate. I want to be known as a man of love. But Lord, when it comes time to stand against the evil that's in this world, I pray that you'd help me to do it in a way that reflects how Christ would do it if he were in my shoes. I thank you, Lord God, for this time. I pray, Lord, for these men. I pray, Lord, that they would be lovers of God, they'd be lovers of people, that they would love everything there is to know about you, and they would manifest that out into the world. And I pray that you'd prepare them, you would encourage them, you'd strengthen them, you'd equip them to be real men, biblical men, that they would not be ashamed of their masculinity, but they would stand proud and say, I am a man. God made me this way, and he didn't make a mistake. And I ask, Lord God, that you would use them to proclaim to the rest of this world, Lord, that, that it is good to be a man. It's not evil. It's not bad. Just in the same way, it's good to be a woman if you're a woman. 
And so I pray, Lord, help these men to be real men. I praise you, we love you, and we lift this time up to you. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. God bless you guys. Thank you for joining us for the Real Men series. It's our hope that these messages will help you to grow in your faith. If there's anything we can do to help you with that, or if you have any questions, please do not hesitate to connect with us. You can do that by going to calvaryfv.com connect to find all the different ways you can connect with us. In the show notes, you'll find links to other things from Calvary Chapel, French Valley, or other things that I have done. Please do not hesitate to connect with us if there's anything we can bless you with. Until next time, go be radical with Jesus. Jesus.